Good afternoon, Cece. Good afternoon, Jess. This is weird. I know. Usually we record so early in the morning. I, I said so early. It's like really it's not really that early. that early, but it's really not. No. But we it's usually, weird to be afternoon. It's weird to be recording on a full stomach. <laughs> right? Usually I'm like, <laughs> when is lunch? I'm hungry. Just kidding. I'm but not. today I'm like, nah, I'm full of French toast and ready to go. Yeah. I got my Halloween pants on. I did notice that. I was like, she's so festive today. I have my Ouija board sweatshirt in the car, but it has proven not to be so chilly that I need it. It's October. And it was chilly this morning. It was in the 40s when I woke up. It was, yeah. Yep. When I left to bring my my kid to school, it was sweatshirt weather. By the way, I was uh, informed recently that it is like not necessarily entirely distinctly New England, but somebody was like, I can tell you're from New England because you talk about the weather a lot. Oh. And I was like, is that not a thing <laughs> other places? <laughs> like, does the weather just change that much here that it's just a common topic of conversation? I mean, there's that saying about if you That's don't what like I mean. the weather in New England, just wait a minute. Wait a minute. So it's always worth talking about, in my yeah. opinion. But anyway, enough about the weather because <laughs> we all I could get lost there. I could talk about it all day. What are we talking about this week, and is it spooky? This week, it is spooky, and we are coming back to New England, because apparently that's a thing that I am doing, even though we left New England. For what it's worth, <laughs> I think this topic was decided like a year and a half ago. I mean, it was. I've had this sitting in my like ready-to-go bin Which for is a while. kind of funny, because I feel like when we jump into this one... It's not something I knew about before you brought it to the table. So it's kind of weird that it's been one that's just been like hanging on. Mm -hmm. I didn't know about it either. I think my younger brother bought me a book about New England, like ghost legends, and it was in the book. Okay, cool. that's where I found it. And then he told me that a couple of his friends had gone there and seen that it was spooky. So we've got some secondhand accounts. Okay. Yes. I like it. I do. Um, So... Bring it home. What is, I've completely forgotten what number of episode we're on of season three of Myth and Macabre. <laughs> what are we about today? Today, in whatever episode number we are on of season three, <laughs> we're going to be talking about the Ramtail Factory in Foster, Rhode Island. I know where Foster, Rhode Island is, barely. Um, I mean, it's not a place it, where I spend a lot of time. It's barely a place. So... <laughs> And I mean that in the nicest way. <laughs> it's a lot of woods. There's a lot okay, of woods that makes out there sense. and not too much else. I don't spend a lot of time there either. But today we are going to talk about the Ramtail Factory and the legend that surrounds it. And then we're going to kind of talk about like the actual history that created the legend and some kind of spooky things that people say go on there. Okay, I am super excited. I can't explain why, but the Ramtail Factory makes me think of the Hussack Tunnel. I have no idea why. In my head, they feel similar. So I'm excited for you to tell us about it so that I can differentiate the two of them in my brain. Okay. There's not really too much similar about them because the Hussack Tunnel was like a railroad tunnel. And this is a factory, which I don't like... know why in my brain they're like <laughs> similar, but they are. I mean, they're both like working with your hands, I guess. I don't know. I try not to figure it out. (laughs) I let my brain do what it does. Okay, that's fine. Brains do what they do regardless of how we feel about things because they're brains. So we'll start with the legend. And as the legend goes, 
I'm sorry if I pronounced this incorrectly. I did look it up. But if anybody knows better than I do, please tell me that I'm wrong because I would like to correct it. But we are going to start with Peleg Walker. He is the son-in-law of William Potter. William owned the Ramtail factory in Foster with some partners, and they hired Peleg as the factory's night watchman. Like right from the get-go, is there history of the factory before this? Or is this like first they've opened it, they hired a watchman, this is the guy? We're going to do like the whole history after this. Oh, okay. This is just like the legend part of it. Oh, okay. Um, You probably said that and I just missed it. No, it's okay. So this is just the legend part and then we're going to move on to like the whole history it just needed like that little bit of setup before we could get okay into, so like, this is like a thing. hero of the players in yes. the legend okay so peleg began to quote unquote borrow money from the factory william and the partners found out they confronted him and they asked for the money to be paid back the argument ended with peleg being ousted from the business And on his way out, he told the men that they, quote, would one day have to retrieve the keys to the mill from the pocket of a dead man. That's like a really foreboding thing to say on your way out after you've been caught stealing. Yes, it is. The partners laughed it off as the dramatics of an angry man. That's until the morning of May 19th, 1822. The mill had a bell that they used to signal the workers when work began and when work ended. On this particular day, the bell didn't ring as it was supposed to for, like, the morning shift to go in. Was it, like, an automated bell or was the bell, like, missing its hammer? I believe that it was Peleg's job to ring the bell at the end of his watchman shift to signal the workers to come in. Got it. So the concerned mill workers alerted William, the mill's owner, and his son only. Only. O-L-N. Why is that word hard? (laughs) Like Onlyville? Like Onlyville, yeah. Okay. Um, So they alerted William and his son Only Potter. They gathered at the factory where William and his son determined that the building was still locked and secured. So the father and son ended up breaking a window to enter the factory. They didn't even have like a key to their own factory? I don't know if they didn't have a key or they didn't bring it. Is it? You but usually legend. the watchman has the key. Yeah. Okay. But I mean, it's know, a legend. Legends have plot holes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> plot hole. They didn't have a key. So once they were inside, they found the body of Peleg Walker hanging from the bell rope with the mill's keys hanging out of his vest pocket. Peleg was removed and buried in the family plot. But one night shortly after his burial, the mill bell began to ring at midnight. And upon investigating, no one was in the bell tower. This happened two nights in a row, thinking that it was just kids with like a twisted sense of humor. The potters decided to remove the bell rope, so they just took the rope right on down after the second occurrence. But on the third night, the bell rang again at midnight, even without the rope to pull it and ring the bell. I like this. This is kind of a spooky story. It is a spooky story. So this prompted the potters to just completely remove the bell. They just took the bell out of the tower. Like that They're was like, this is too creepy. Take it out. Yep. This offered the village a moment of peace because this is like a milling village. So like that's why the bell rang because the workers lived in the village. Makes sense. So they offered it a moment of peace. But only a few nights later, the village was awoken to the sound of the factory in full operation. So now it's not the bell. It's just the whole factory is just running and working in the middle of the night. So all mysterious sound and production of the mill ceased at midnight. 
And this would continue to happen regularly, causing the villagers and the workers to leave the area. So they were like, no, thank you. That's going to be a no. And this is all still legend. This is all still legend. Okay. The declining population in the workforce caused the factory to close a few years later. And in the 1870s, the dilapidated abandoned factory burned to the ground, which this isn't part of legend. This actually happened. It did burn to the ground. I was going to say this is a very like real feeling legend anyway. Yeah. yeah, it has a lot of like truth in it. But the factory being burned to the ground does not stop Peleg Walker from ringing the ghostly bell at midnight on a regular basis. All right. So there's still a ringing bell. So you said it burnt to the ground. Yes. But you also made a comment earlier that your younger brother's friends visited it. So it's pretty much just the foundation now. Oh, okay. I was going to ask if it had been rebuilt and like went back into operation or if it is just a foundation. No, it's pretty much just like a crumbling foundation. Okay. Um, That's just there. So good to know. Yes. So now we're going to go into like the actual history of it, which I mean, it pretty much follows. Was Peleg Walker a real person? He was a real person. Yes. Oh, okay, cool. Yep. So, factory history. In 1790, Warwick, Rhode Island resident and businessman William Potter decided he wanted to create a new mill and a working village on the Ponagansett River. So, as we've talked about in earlier episodes, 19th century New England was thriving with, like, mills and manufacturing and you know, factories and things like that. So, it's not a strange thing for this successful businessman to want to, like... Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's a little bit further into Rhode Island than you hear about most of the mills and factories, but definitely not unheard of for the area. Right. So he traveled to the quote-unquote outlands, which is what they called the area of the time, and purchased... I mean, I didn't know where Foster was, so it was pretty much the outlands in my head, too. (laughs) It's still the outlands to most people, at least most people that I know. So he traveled to the outlands. He purchased this land from a man named Jonathan Hopkins, who was the area's first recorded settler, which is kind of a fun fact. That is pretty cool, yeah. So the Outlands, as it was known at the time, was anything west of the Seven Mile Line. And the Seven Mile Line was the line that separated Situate from Cranston, with the land on the Cranston side being populated and the land on the Situate side being mostly uninhabited woodlands. I don't know where Situate is. (laughs) I know. I know where Cranston is. I know. So I was going to say, if the term seven mile line sounds familiar to anyone from the area, it's now part of the, part of the line is now seven mile road, which you and I have driven aimlessly many times in our teenage years. (laughs) Here's this road we spend tons of time on. Oh, (laughs) yeah. No, I would not have known that was the name. Is that the one with the weird bridge? Over the reservoir? Yeah. Yes. Oh, okay. I believe. I know the one we're talking about. That's part of it. It's like in that area. Yeah. That may not specifically be part of Seven Mile Road, but I know we've spent a lot of time in that area on that bridge. Cool. Doing things. Anyway. Not on the side that nobody knows anything about. Uh, No. Not on the Here Be Dragon side. (laughs) We were on the populated (laughs) side. So anyway, back to the purchase now that we got that out of the way. In 1790, William purchased the land from Jonathan and he purchased a sawmill and a grist mill. In 1813, William decided that he was going to expand and build what was at the time the largest water-powered mill. For this endeavor, he needed help. He enlisted the help of four close men in his life, Jonathan Ellis, his brother-in-law, Olney Potter, his son, and two son-in-laws, Marvin Round and Peleg Walker. Can I ask a question before we get a little too far removed from it? Yes. So you said he owned 
There were sawmills and gristmills. Yes. What's a gristmill? I don't know. There's even a restaurant near where we grew up called the gristmill, <laughs> and I don't know what a gristmill is. I don't either. Um, I probably should have looked it up, but I didn't. I would say I would look it up now, but we had some mic issues on a previous recording that I think is from having cell phones too close to the mics. Oh, but wait, so, we have computers. Oh, are you going to look up a gristmill? I'm sorry to get totally what off track. I just, a... I like was waiting for you to explain what a gristmill was. and I was hoping you weren't going to ask. Oh, a gristmill grinds grain into flour. That is a gross name for that, but all right. Okay, so now cool. we know. Cool. Thank you for clearing that up. Now I know. You're so welcome. I just learned something new at 35. <laughs> <laughs> I learn something new every day. Me too. Together, these five men founded the Foster Woolen Manufacturing Company. So neither a sawmill nor a gristmill. Correct. Okay. Uh, It is worth noting that Foster at this time was considered to be declining industrially, but William and his partners decided they were up for the challenge and they were going to bring Foster back to its industrial glory. Which would imply that Foster had had industrialization there prior. Yes. Okay, cool. So the plans for the expansion included the mill, a bridge going across there was like a dam. They were going to put a bridge across the dam, five mill homes, a general store, a warehouse, and a blacksmith shop. So they were going to put all this in like a nice little village for the factory workers to like live and work and be close to everything that they needed. Okay. The mill was going to be a fulling mill. And for anyone wondering what a fulling mill is, I did look that up. <laughs> you that one, but not the grist mill. Because, Got it. <laughs> because this is the mill that we're talking about the most. Fulling is the process of beating, beating woven wood. Oh my God, there's too many W's. That's a lot of W's. Fulling is the process of beating woven woolen cloth while wet to cause the opposing fibers to interlock and form a more homogeneous textile. And so I'm going on a tangent of a fun fact because we all know I like to tangent fun facts uh, when I can't find where to fit them in. So the actual name of the factory was the Foster Woolen Manufacturing Company, but it was and still is, as we know, better known as the Ramtail Factory, because that's what we're calling this episode. That's what we're referring to it in this episode. That's what most people that know about it refer it to. So it's called Ramtail Factory. But why is it called Ramtail Factory? You took the words (laughs) out of my mouth. I'm so glad you asked. Although then I had a moment where I was like, do rams have woolly tails? No, I, I didn't know. No, it doesn't have to do with rams. I mean, oh. Maybe. I mean, it kind of has it. Well, I'm getting there. I'm there. We're right there. <laughs> I was going to say, what are we doing before we get there? We're right there. We are there. So there's two different stories about where the name Ramtail comes from. The first is from the process of stretching the cloth. Loose pieces of wool would be clipped from the edges and fall onto the floor in small little curls that resemble a ram's tail. The second story involves a farmer that supposedly brought ram's tails to the factory to be rolled into the cloth. So they do have woolly tails. <laughs> I guess they do. I'm trying to think of a ram, though. Like, it, I don't think... It I just think about their heads, like, in their horns. I don't yeah. think about their tails at all. I think that the first story is more logical, that they clip the fibers and it falls and, like, looks like That's a just kind of what floor. it looks like. Yeah, that makes sense. Because, like, who's got a ton of rams to try and bring... It doesn't make any sense. And also, why are you just putting their tails in it? Like, oh, Yeah, I'm going to stick with the first story. <laughs> so story number one. But either way, 
Ramtail became a common way to refer to cotton mills during the time. So, oh, that makes it feel like it's definitely the like ends on the floor. Yeah, if every cotton mill kind of gets called like a ramtail mill, like that. Yeah, I like, think it's I the first think, one. I don't think cotton mills are sticking ram tail fibers. <laughs> exactly, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I think it's I think it's story number one. I think story number one makes more sense. That is true. Okay, so that's my tangent, and that's over. So around 1826 ish, I couldn't find like an exact year, but that was kind of just like where it sounded like it made the most sense. A few years after Peleg's death, which we will get into in a little bit, but we need to know for this part that he is dead. Okay. So Peleg dead. Peleg dead. A few years after his death, Marvin Round, Jonathan Ellis, and William Potter decided to sell off and gift their shares of the business to William's son, Olney E., and William A. Potter. So William had the two sons, Olney and William. Okay, so everybody else, like, got out of the game. Yep. So they wanted to just, like, leave the factory to the two sons. William wanted to get out. His partners, Marvin and Jonathan, wanted to get out. So William and Olney are left as the sole owners of the Ramtail factory. Unfortunately, it didn't last long, as Olney died suddenly in May of 1831. Okay, so that was... Um, a few years later. A few years later, yeah. Okay. So Peleg died May 19th of 1822 and only died May of 1831. So almost 10 years, nine years, nine years later. Okay. Depending on the source, some say that it was the 15th when only died, but others say it was the 19th. And if you remember from our legend, like we just talked about, Peleg died on the 19th. That um, would be creepy. Yes. Because the date in the legend is factual. He did actually die on May 19th, 1822. So if only died on the 19th, it would mean that he died on the ninth calendar day anniversary of Peleg's death, which is weird. Yep. <laughs> but if he died on the 15th, also weird, that would mean that they both died on the third Sunday in May for their respective years of death. Ooh, so either way. Either that's, way. That's kind of creepy and coincidental. It is. It's very good. I just made up a word. Coincidental <laughs> is not a word. I like that word. Coincidental. <laughs> But yeah, so either way, I thought it was weird. I just wanted to throw that in there because it was interesting. There was also a statement that I read that I thought was interesting. And it said May 19th of 1822, so when Peleg died, and then May 15th of 1831, when possibly Olney died. Those two dates, the sunrise and the sunset, were at the exact same times, 440 for sunrise, 720 for sunset. I did try to do a Google search to verify this, but I couldn't find like an almanac or anything. Um, but I just thought that was a fun fact. <laughs> if it that is true. That is kind of a fun fact if it's true. I mean, even not true, it's kind of a fun fact to think about. Yeah. It adds to the legend of spookiness. Anywho, so when Olney suddenly died, his wife, Aura, inherited his shares of the business. So now it's her and her brother-in-law, William, that own the factory. So about two years after Olney died, Aura and William decide that they're going to lease the factory and the land out to another operator. David Matthews and Darius Sherman decided they were going to take them up on this deal. Is it still the same type of mill at this point? I they're just so. kind of giving it to kind of another company to use. Yeah, they're kind of just leasing it out. And it's like, here, you do it. You, you do what you want. It. Here's It's our building. Yes, this is our building. You pay us rent for it. Got it. So things worked on this way for about three years. And then David and Darius decided not to renew their lease for unknown reasons. So the business responsibilities fell back to Aura and William. 
Six years later, in 1843, William now died, leaving his shares to his widow, Catherine. So, so now it's a woman-owned business. It is a woman-owned business. I wonder if it was first. <laughs> that would be fun. Rhode Island, home of the first woman-owned business. Yeah, I don't know if that's actually <laughs> true, but that would be kind of cool. That would be cool. But no. Um, anyway, so Aura and Catherine are now left to figure out what to do with this business on their own. They ran the factory together for about a year until Aura decided to sell off her shares. And on June 3rd of 1844, she sold three quarters of the company to Orsmiths. Probably should have looked that one up too. The, so Aura sold her shares to Catherine. Nope. She sold them to the man named Orsmith Taft. Of okay. So then it was Orsmith and Catherine. Yep. So now. So how did she, she just had more shares of the company? I guess, however it worked out, okay. when, like, the two sons... Thought, I, like, expected... I don't know why. In my head, I expected them to have even shares. So when you said yeah. two-thirds, I was like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think it was, like, just the way that, like, the shares got dispersed. And then, like, when the people died... Like, when the husbands died and then, like, what was left to the lives. Yeah, well, because it was five men originally anyway. So right. if at some point somebody's shares got sold to one person it's not going to be an even split anymore right that makes sense yeah so aura ended up with three quarters of the company she sold it off to orsmith taft catherine followed later that year also selling her quarter of the business to mr taft so he now owns the whole so now it's like completely out of the family at this point yes he didn't hold on to the property very long in less than three years after that in 1847 he sold it to a man named welcome arnold yes his first name is welcome his last name is arnold of oxford mass (laughs) and he sold the property to him for twenty five hundred dollars which is about eighty one i was waiting for it i was like she's about to tell us how much this is in modern money eighty one thousand dollars today all right i mean it's a pretty decent amount of money yeah you figure if, if things are on a decline as well and it's not like in use at this point it makes sense that it's not it going for, like, huge amounts of money. Yeah. The factory ceased operation in 1850, and Welcome was no longer able to pay the debts on the property and was forced to sell it at a public auction. I couldn't find exactly, like, when the auction was, but it was somewhere around 1859. Okay. A man named Richard Briggs won the auction, and he paid $1,300 for the property um that's cheap that feels like a steal very cheap it's forty three thousand five hundred dollars today and it's a factory so i can't imagine it's like a small plot of land well it was like i think the whole property was like the village oh oh my gosh yeah then that's like a complete steal yeah he also didn't i don't know this property changed hands like so many times it sounds like so it. Many times. are we sure that the legend isn't just that the property is cursed like oh my goodness so then he didn't hold on to it very long he auctioned it off a man named john d cranston of providence that's confusing <laughs> it is so confusing became the new owner he only paid 450 dollars for it in 1867 which is about ten thousand dollars today Oh, this value, the value of this property just keeps depreciating. Like, it, it goes lower. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it just keeps going because we're still switching hands here. In 1873, most of the property was burned to its foundation. It was presumably set intentionally or unintentionally by bored local youths. So like kids going in there playing with fire. Okay. So we don't know if they did it on purpose or not, but that's most likely what happened. But most likely that's what happened. 
John Cranston held on to the property until he died in 1881, and then it was sold for $125, which is about $4,000 today, at an estate oh sale to a man named George Burnham. He eventually sold it off to a man named Barton. So at this point, is it just like <laughs> land with a foundation? Like nobody's doing anything with it. Yeah, They're just it's like, just... that's my property. Eh, now I'm going to sell it. Now it's your property. Like, yep. And like okay. for whatever reason, like nobody's doing anything with this. I couldn't find exactly how long he had it, but he eventually decided that he didn't want to do anything with it. He was done with it. So he sold it to the Barton Reservoir Company for $1. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I've heard about things like that where it's just like a yeah transfer of deed, really. Yeah, it was probably more of a gift than it was a sale. Just yeah. Like, Here, have this property. Makes Give sense. me a dollar. I feel like <laughs> I feel like at one point somebody sold, somebody I knew in my life sold a car for like a dollar so that it wouldn't be a gift. It was like a sale. It was me. <laughs> was it you? It was me. I was like, somebody in my life did this and yeah. I don't remember who. It was you. It was me. <laughs> I did. I sold my car for a dollar, um, and then she sold it back to me because someone threw, I think, t- taco fixings on it. <laughs> I'm not sure. I don't know. That's weird. It was. It was. It was the green one. My green car with my blue door. Oh, yeah. the Geo. The Geo. Oh. Yep. I sold it for a dollar, and then I bought it back for a dollar. <laughs> what a weird life. <laughs> I like it. I like it. It's mine. I'll take it. I guess. So at this time, the Barden Company decided that they were going to flood parts of the land and create a reservoir, which I believe is now part of the Situate Reservoir, which that bridge that you were talking about earlier goes oh, okay. over yeah. the Situate Reservoir. So like it was in that area that we were driving around. So I've been to Situate. Didn't know it, <laughs> but I've been there. Yes, we. I believe we have crossed the line into Situate on a few occasions. I don't know how far into Situate we went. Uh, we did a lot of driving around in high school. Gas That's prices fair. were much lower. It was like a dollar ninety four. <laughs> you could afford to just fill up your gas tank and be like, "We're gonna go drive and listen to music really loudly for the next couple of hours." It used to cost me twenty dollars to fill the tank in that geo, and that would last me forever. That's so weird to think about. I know. That's so sad R. to think about. Geo prism. Yep, my geo, my little geo. Anyway. Trip down memory lane. That was fun. (laughs) Jess and I do it often. (laughs) Frequently. So eventually the reservoir was sold to the Providence Water Supply Board. And the Barden Company retained some of the land, but sold it off in portions that neither the Barden Company or the Providence Water Supply Board needed. And in 1927, a six-acre lot containing the actual Ramtail factory ruins was sold to Frank Hinckley, for $10, which is about $175 today. So just so cheap. Okay. I know. Like, it just, it's, it just keeps getting cheap. Now I'm like, can I go find a factory ruin and buy it for like 25 bucks? No. Probably not, but no, you cannot. I'd like to. I know. Well, this was also in, when was this? The early 1900s. 1920s, yeah. yeah. So, you know. Between 1979 and 1984, Hinckley slowly sold off parcels of the land. So he owned it for a long time. He did, yeah. So he kept it from like the 20s. Like 50 plus years, yeah. yeah. Most of his life, it looks like. But he sold it off in parcels to like private people and corporate companies. Makes sense. And the area became a land trust recreation area in 2008. 
What does that mean? Um, it's similar to like a conservation area. Oh, okay. So now it just kind of sits there. <laughs> All right. Now still not the land with the foundation though. That was the land with the foundation because oh, okay. that's what he bought so for that's a the ten dollars. Yep. Okay. And so that's part of the conservation now is the land that had the factory on it. Everything else was kind of sold off. And then that's kind of what is left. Okay. So now we're going to talk about the man behind the legend now that we got like the history of everything. Can I ask a quick historical question? Sure. So it's on conservation land. Is conservation land privately owned? Can you go see this? I mean, obviously your brother's friends did, but like, were they trespassing? In Rhode Island, most land trusts are private. Oh, okay. So So they were trespassing. If you're listening, you shouldn't go visit it. (laughs) You'll be trespassing. Plus it's a foundation, which feels like it's not really very safe to go. Yeah. Yeah. It's like ruins. So yeah, I don't know like how closely they monitor trespassing, but it sounds like it is probably technically a privately owned. Probably shouldn't visit it. But in one of the books that I read, it was like, it was literally a bunch of people that like, they might've gotten permission though. Cause they're like paranormal investigators. Yeah. So, like, usually they, had permission. they usually get permission for the things that they do. Yeah. I don't know. And even if they don't. They usually get permission for the things they do. They get permission. For legal purposes, they get permission. Yes. Permission is always important. So let's talk about Peleg for a little bit. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about Peleg. Peleg. I like his name. Me too. Why? Peleg Walker was born around 1787 because record keeping. Mm -hmm. Um, He was born in Foster, Rhode Island. So he's from here. On April 22nd of 1810, he married the mill owner's daughter, so William Potter's daughter, Mary Potter, who also went by Polly. So this is how he's, like, involved with the family. Yes. That makes sense. Yeah. So this is why he was part of, like, the the five men to, like, found everything and why he had, like, a bigger part in it. On May 28th of 1810, she gave birth to their first child, Albert which is only a month after they got married in the 1800s. So I would say that's scandalous. They went on to have three more children, Edwin Paris and their only daughter, Harriet, who was born, the children were born on February 13th of 1812, December 1st of 1813, and June 20th of 1816. There's not really too much information about Peleg like before he died. But based on land deeds and postmortem asset inventory, he may have been living well beyond his means. I mean, if he's also like stealing from the place of work that he owns, <laughs> I, this like, doesn't feel overly surprising. Exactly. Whatever was going on in his life apparently became too much for him because on Sunday, May 19th of 1822, The mill community was going about their morning routines, getting ready for church, because during this time period, it was illegal to work on Sundays. So the legend version of the bell not ringing to like wake the workers up was like an exaggeration. So not super true because it was a Sunday, but they were like going about their business, getting ready for church, doing normal, ordinary things. Mary and the children woke up, but they couldn't find Peleg anywhere. So she contacted her family to help her look for him. Makes sense. Yes. They eventually made their way to the family factory, but when they entered the building, they found a trail of blood on the steps and it led them to Peleg's body. 
it didn't say where in the factory it was found in like the research I did. But well, and if it's bloody, it sounds a lot less like he was hung. Yeah, he had apparently trigger warning, slit his own throat, not hung himself from the bell rope with the keys dangling. So I mean, he did die. I was gonna say it did sound like they didn't have a problem getting in the building. Yeah. So we definitely have embellished on this legend a bit. Yeah, but I mean, with the legend, like a lot of it is true. Like I said, he did die in the factory. It was self-inflicted, and it was the the same people that found him. The yeah. So at the time of his death, he owed his father-in-law and the factory about $500, which is a little over 11000 in today's money. I can see why they had a confrontation about him borrowing, <laughs> borrowing money from the money. factory. That's a lot. Yes. He was believed that he had been funding his lifestyle by borrowing from the factory. And the partners probably found out and confronted him. He was most likely ousted from the partnership, as the legend said. But because he was family, he was probably kept on as the night watchman. Makes um, sense. Like, you're you're going to lose some of your stakes because you've stolen this money, but... Right. But you're still family, yeah. so we still got to take care of you. So that probably is, like, what prompted the legend of, like, the angry night watchman. So he was, like, ousted from, like, running the business, but they still kind of kept him in a little bit. Makes sense. It also surfaced that before Peleg died, he had been selling off some of his business shares, possibly to repay some of the debts. But there's no evidence of him, like, acting strangely leading up to his death, for the most part, except for a few days before he died. Okay. Yeah. A couple days before he died, he started acting strange. I mean, by then he had probably made up his mind what he was going to do. And unfortunately, that feels like it would track. Yeah. Or he didn't kill himself. Wait, is there really a conspiracy theory? Or are you just, like, whispering ridiculousness? Super sure what I believe. So there is a conspiracy theory. It could kind of go either way, yeah. Okay, spill it. Spill it. On May 16th, so three days before they found him dead. uh, When he's acting weird. When he's acting weird. He drew up two documents just before midnight that transferred some of the shares to William and Olney. So two of the partners and his in-laws. The deeds were entered into the town records at 1245 a.m. Who was around to do that? Yes. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) It is also worth noting that the documents are written in two different handwritings and Peleg's signature is different on each document. Oh, this. Oh. (laughs) Oh. Oh, man. This is the stuff mysteries are made out of. (laughs) I know. Oh, man. So do you think he was coerced by someone? Do they have any idea who it is? Got to be somebody in like the town, right? Not necessarily that specific town, but... Towns. Well, somebody who could, like, register it after midnight. Yeah. So that was my next thing. So I have questions here. Yeah, me too. Like, Obviously. a lot. So question number one, why did this need to be drafted and entered into the records at midnight in a time when people, like, retire for the day when the sun sets? Seriously. Like, the sun sets, the registry is closed. Why are we entering records into the registry at nighttime? Indeed. In the middle of the night. This feels shady at so, like, best. We we woke people up to do this yeah and then which could be the works of somebody who's like acting strangely but also could be coercion it could be i mean when people are coerced into things they usually act strangely true story (laughs) and question number two 
I want to know who actually wrote up and signed these documents because his signature so was different. Was on both. one of them like so the signatures were different on both, but was one of them Peleg's signature? Like was one of them one that they're like, yeah, that's Peleg's handwriting. Um, I'm not sure, but there's also another interesting thing about the signature and the documents. It's important to note that Mary's signature was not on either document, and she was present and signed all of the documents with him, except for these two. Like up until this point, she's always been like there yeah. with him. Yeah. So interesting. Hmm. There was an addendum added after his death that Mary signed approving the transfer of the shares. So like maybe she was going to sign these and he didn't want to wake her, but or she was coerced into signing the addendum. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I wasn't there. I have so many, so many questions. So many questions. I'm developing my own theories and I don't even have all the information. <laughs> I know. I mean, that's pretty much all the information. But there was also a strange situation with the witnesses, because, you know, when you sign a document, you need a witness, too. The witnesses were Samuel and Susanna Weld of Providence. So this is all happening in, like, Foster. And these two people from Providence are the witnesses on these documents that were entered into the town record at midnight. (laughs) Did they have any connection with Peleg? Yes. And also at this time... Other than like they were the witnesses to him signing the paper. Yeah. At this time, it was uncommon to have witnesses from outside of the township. So like... Makes sense. Yeah. Suspicious. They came in from Providence. In the middle of the night. In the middle of the night to sign this document that had two different... Can this document be signed earlier and then Uh, put in or... No. It all has to happen at like the same time. Yeah. I think it's the same as like when you have witnesses now, like it has to be a witness. Like they have to witness the signing of the document yeah and then sign off that they witnessed it okay i didn't know if that was the same time as when it was like registered like if they could have witnessed him signing it at 7 p.m and somebody was just working really 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 late and Mm. like got to it after midnight no 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 this this was not a time when hard work was well not hard work was definitely a thing but like when your day was done your day was done like you didn't stay late because things still needed to get done it's not like today but I want to know why were Samuel and Susanna out in Foster on a weeknight in the 1800s when, like, you... It would have been an odd thing to be it's doing. Odd. Yeah. It's strange. Or did Peleg travel to them in Providence in the middle of the night? Confused. And why? And why? And Susanna's maiden name is Walker. So is she related to him? Like, so that was what I was wondering. Yeah. Yeah. Is it like, are these in-laws or somebody's sibling? Like, yeah. So I'm not sure exactly how they're related, but like her maiden name is Walker. So like that just adds to the suspicion. And then why is the family signing as a witness and not the town clerk? That's why I wondered if it was signed at a different time than it was registered with the town. Yeah. Because like, then wouldn't the clerk who's registering it just be the witness? Right. Daniel Howard was the town clerk, and he was also the one that entered the documents into the record at 1245 on the morning of May 17th. So so even if they did it somewhere, he was still at work at a weird hour. Right. So like, why couldn't he sign them when he entered them into the town records at 1245? I'm confused. I have so many questions. Make it make sense. And then the whole other thing that just throws me off is like the way that he supposedly committed suicide. Like... You don't slit your own throat. Like, that's not a that's thing that a you That's a tough do. one. Yeah. I feel like that's one of those, like, whenever you watch any kind of, like, 
cop or crime show <laughs> whenever somebody does themselves off that way. There's a lot of suspicion because that's kind of a weird way to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Questions and no answers. I have no answers for anybody. I'm sorry. I, yeah. I'm like, I want all of them and I know, I know you don't have I them, don't. but I want them. I don't have them. So that's the history and, you know, Peleg's life, I guess, um, as much of his life that we know. But is it haunted? That's my favorite question. <laughs> I know it is. Often, Which is funny because I think you're usually the one who's more likely to believe the haunted stuff than I am. But I always want to know if it's supposed to be haunted. <laughs> I know. I'm like, I might not believe a single thing you're about to say, but do you have something to say? <laughs> yes, I do. I do have things to say. So author and paranormal researcher Thomas D'Agostino definitely believes that it's haunted. Oh, I've seen his books around. He's got like a bunch of books. He wrote the book that I used for a lot of this research. Okay, cool. So he did tell ABC6 during an interview that Ramtail Factory Ruins is the most active place he has ever been. Wow. Then it's got to be more than just Peleg. Like, were there worker injuries? I don't know enough about like labor laws so i don't know I mean, there probably weren't labor laws <laughs> i don't yeah i don't know like you know how far back labor laws go but like interesting oh that's cool yep so he says it's the most active place that he has ever been and there are many accounts from people who have ventured out there like i said my brother's friends have gone out there they've seen like orbs and things which i know how you feel about orbs dust <laughs> dust <laughs> it's dust all we are is dust in the wind or orbs in a photograph yes it wasn't a picture of an orb though they said they saw orbs okay a that's little different slightly, than taking a that's picture of slightly an orb. better in my opinion yeah so there's many accounts of people you know that venture out there seeing things they hear footsteps when nobody's around. They see blue orbs floating through the trees, shadow figures. They hear disembodied voices. Thomas has been out there several times. And in his book, Rhode Island's Haunted Ramtail Factory, that he co-wrote with his wife, Arlene Nicholson, which is also the book that I used for a lot of this. So in the book, they recount a time when they went out with some other members of their paranormal research group called NEAR which stands for New England Anomalies Research. <clears throat> okay. So NEAR. NEAR was founded by Keith Johnson and his wife, Sandra. And Keith and his brother, Carl, are both fairly famous in the paranormal community. Carl has credits on the show Ghost Hunters. Okay. And if you remember from our season one episode about the SK Pierce mansion, they were the ones who called in the Warrens to investigate the Conjuring House which was also a season one episode <laughs> when they were new to the paranormal research community. So cool. we've talked about them. Yeah, <laughs> they've come up a few times. Yep. So anyway, Thomas, Arlene, Keith, Sandra, Carl, and some other near members went out on a mission to investigate Ramtail one night. During this night, they each had their own separate experiences that Thomas documented in the book. They heard footsteps, they heard voices, they saw orbs. They also reported seeing a shadow figure that was described as a tall, thin man. They heard a whispered argument coming from the woods. And when they went to investigate, there was no one there. Do we have a description of Peleg? No. Okay. I didn't know if there was, like, if he was notably a stout man or (laughs) notably a tall, skinny man. Tall, thin man. No, unfortunately, I don't. But when they were out on their expedition one of them i don't remember exactly which one it was but they were walking alone and it was near like the foundation's rubble and they said their shirt was tugged forcefully 
Ooh. Yeah, I know. I don't like that. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. It's like orbs are all fine and wonderful, but please don't touch me. Right. <laughs> um, if I ever encounter something supernatural, I would not like to be touched by please it. Please do not put your hands on me. Keep your hands to yourself. Basic rules 101. <laughs> <laughs> Duh, the rules. Don't touch me. Don't hit me. The investigators that were out also reported cold spots and like a heavy atmosphere, almost as if there were like people in the woods watching them. Ooh, okay. I was going to say, so if this is just a foundation, this is mostly outdoors, right? Yes, yeah. The whole thing, I believe, is There's not now. like a basement still there. I don't think so. Okay. I don't know if the factory even had a basement. Do factories okay. have basements? I have no idea. Uh, my husband works in a factory. I'll ask him. <laughs> Does your factory? Well, because you know what I mean. It's kind of the difference between like here's a slab of concrete foundation, right. or here's like a foundation that goes under the ground. There's maybe some stairs that you know what I mean. That's kind of yeah. what I was asking. No, the um, from what I gather from the pictures that I've seen, it it doesn't look like there's any kind of like stairs or like underground basement it's just areas kind of remaining. Like a concrete slab. It's just like slabs. So yeah, they report the. Heavy atmosphere, like people watching them. Thomas, the main author of the book, also recalls hearing the distinct creaking of a handheld candle lantern. Oh, that's a very, like, specific specific. sound. I thought it was very specific. The rest of the team was not lucky enough to hear it, but they also report a bell in the distance ringing around midnight, which many believe is the spirit of Peleg reliving his job as the night watchman. All right. And that is all I have on Ramtail Factory. I'm glad we finally got to this. <laughs> this one had been hanging around for a while. I knew absolutely nothing about it. And I think it's kind of neat. I think we haven't had too many recently in recent episodes that have been really haunted. So this I know. is kind of, this is fun. Yeah. This season is like less of a haunty season and more of like a that's spooky. Yeah, when in like a different history, kind of way. People, I don't know. Yeah. I was never a history person. I'm still not for some reason. Kind <laughs> of am. I don't know. But yeah, it's been a lot more of like folklore and history and a lot less of like, this is the ghost that haunts this thing. So I'm glad we kind of got back to it. Yeah. Also, too. for anyone listening to this episode who might be picking it up in the background, the weird disembodied squeaking is not haunted. <laughs> We're in a different room than we normally are to record today, and this table is very squeaky. It's a squeaky table. But anyway, that was just a side note, because I keep being the one to make the table squeak. So. I honestly <laughs> didn't even notice it until you just said that. I was like, oh, you're right. The table has been squeaking. But yeah, thank you for telling us about it. I think that's one of those that, like... Never would have ever come up on my radar. I had no idea it existed. So I'm kind I of excited. I, I spent like so much time in Rhode Island because I live there. And I yeah. did not know and this then thing existed. Were like, oh, yeah. We were like on that road all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea. Like I did not know what was in the woods right over there. Very cool. But yeah. So that was that was the story of Peleg Walker and the Ramtail Factory and the New England Anomalies. Research. Research. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, what was the R? Research. (laughs) (laughs) And their experience with it. So I think it's pretty interesting that like a fairly notable paranormal investigator thinks that it is the most active place that he's been. Yeah. I think to me, that's kind of a really fun fact about the whole thing. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you everybody for listening to yet another episode of Myth and Macabre. We are well on our way into season three. And I think if this 
episode airs when it's supposed to air. Next week, you are in for an extra long episode treat for Halloween. Spooky. Spooky season. I don't know why I felt the need to sing that. (laughs) I am very excited about our extra long Halloween episode. Yeah, I hope it's good. I hope I do it justice. I'm like a little... I'm a little nervous. It's kind of, it feels like big shoes to fill and I'd like to do right by it. So I think that you will be fine because it is something that you have loved and talked about literally forever. It's true. <laughs> it's true. Anyway, with that cryptic sound, <laughs> we will talk to you guys all next week for a special Halloween episode of Myth and the Cup. Bye.